Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is the weekly podcast for all your tillage news and advice. In this episode, I'm discussing pesticides on a tillage farm with Gordon Rennick from the Pesticides Registration and Control Divisions, or PRCD, in the Department of Agriculture. I first asked Gordon, what does the PRCD do? PRCD is, uh, it stands for the Pesticide Registration and Control Divisions. And we are two divisions, separate divisions now, but we're linked both within the Department of Agriculture. And we're responsible for, I suppose, all things relating to pesticide approval or pesticide use. And when I talk about pesticides, I mean both uh, plant protection products that are used in crop protection, uh, but also all the biocide products like uh, rodenticides and uh, timber preservatives and uh, general disinfectants, things like that. And that's actually a bigger area than, than PPPs. Um, we also register new products and bring them to the market. Uh, we re-register older products that have been around for, for years. Um, and I suppose the third evaluative uh, thing we do is we evaluate active substances on behalf of the other member states and the EU, as do other countries. Um, and then, I suppose, more practical on the use side of things, we carry out things like farm surveys on pesticide usage. Uh, we also collate all the pesticide sales statistics. Um, we oversee sprayer testing, or what we'd like to call, or we like to call the pesticide application equipment testing, um, as well as overseeing the uh, pesticide training system for advisors, for distributors, for operators. Um, we operate a comprehensive residue monitoring program, uh, testing produce such as you know fruit, vegetables, grains, baby food, milk, eggs, etc., for uh, pesticide residues before it reaches the consumer. Um, and complementing this is a range of farm and retail inspection inspections, which uh, uh, is made up of about fourteen or fifteen hundred farm inspections annually and about 300 retail and wholesale uh, inspections. Um, and then there are other activities involved in uh, things like waste, uh, things like water, servicing international conventions, OECD activities. And then my role on top of all of that is managing a, a small team of people, well, small in comparison to other member states. Uh, and we're primarily responsible for getting plant protection products authorized for use uh, on farms uh, as in a timely manner or as quickly as possible. Um, and I have other responsibilities in the area of the sustainable use of pesticides, uh, as well as things like integrated pest management, hazardous waste. Um, I service a few EU meetings and I sit on the EU committee which votes on the various active substances that farmers use producing their crops year in, year out. Okay, that's yeah, that's a, it's a it's a pretty broad brush that the the the, the PRCD uh, does, and obviously there's a, a lot of staff involved in all of that. Um, you mentioned though that uh, you are involved in registering new chemistry. How, or maybe you might explain to us the um, process that uh, that is around that, and and and, and the part that uh, we play in that, or you play in that. Um, yeah, well, I suppose. Uh the time frames involved and the money involved is, is considerable. Like uh, from initial discovery of an active of a new active substance uh, to the time it takes to get it onto the market, it can be anything between ten and fifteen years. 
and can cost anything between you know 150 and 300 million euros. It's interesting when I talk to groups of students, um, the, you'll get guesses from half a million euros to 150 million euros. They, they don't expect the considerable investment that it takes for for a, a pesticide product. But um, the other issue, I suppose, is the uh, the numbers of actives that are coming through the system in in more recent times. And to put it in context, um, when I came out of college in the uh, early 1990s, um, we were seeing 20, sometimes up to 40 new actives being introduced to the market uh, year in, year out. Whereas in, in more recent years, uh, you're lucky to see one or two new actives uh, reach the market per year. Um, it's a little bit better in other parts of the world, such as the United States, Canada and Australia. But in Europe, we tend to be a lot more conservative and uh, the uh, innovation uh, conveyor belt has, has slowed to a trickle. Um, so when the active is discovered and a data package supporting that active is put together, uh, that data package would include things on human and environmental toxicology and uh, residue chemistry and all those uh, other areas of, of, of endeavor. Um, the company will pick a member state to undertake an evaluation on behalf of the EU. And when that evaluation is completed, it's then looked at by the other member states and the European Food Safety Authority and, and peer reviewed. And then a vote is taken by the EU committee that actually uh, I'm the Irish delegate for. Um, and each member state gets to vote on whether they're uh, in favour or they support that active substance or not. Um, and if that active substance then gets general EU approval, it's up to each of the member states then to. Uh, to see if it's appropriate for them to authorize products containing that active ingredient. So really we have a kind of a two-stage process, an EU approval system for the active ingredient, and then a product approval system uh, that's based at member state level. This process can take anything from three to five years. And generally Ireland has a good record in, in that respect in that we, try to uh, ensure that new chemistry is prioritized and is reaches the market in a timely manner because uh, ultimately new, newer chemistry is uh, generally tends to be safer and uh, um, it has a, a better profile overall. So Gordon, one would assume then, given all of that, that you're, you're talking considerable amounts of money there and you're talking about quite a lot of da data, I presume there's a huge volume of data in in like you said uh, the uh, toxicology and the mammalian studies and the aqua studies and all the various different different bits and pieces how much of a weighting is that given uh, that safety information in comparison to you know how badly a farmer or farmers might need a a, a replacement product in the market <laughs> well in general terms um and talking as a as an agronomist uh, the first thing I look at is how effective uh, the product is in the field. But in general terms, it's the least important aspect that we consider. Um, if there's any issue from an environmental point of view or a human health perspective, the, the active substance simply will not be developed by the company, or at least if it is developed by the company for other parts of the, of the world, it simply won't get through the EU regulatory system, no matter how how good it is in the field. So it's from the efficacy is probably the uh, 
the last thing to be looked at from a, a regulator's perspective. Okay, so it's all about it's all about safety, which is probably fair enough. Nobody wants to have anything that's going to do any harm to, uh, out there anyway. And and talk, talking about that, just in terms of, and you mentioned there about older chemistry. Um, there's some re-registrations, or a lot of those come up for re-registration. Why is that needed? And um, is is it the same process that's involved for for new chemistry coming through? Um, well, re-registration uh, is required. By, uh, by EU regulations. Um, the EU regulations specify that uh, active substances and products undergo periodic review. Uh, so this allows um, new science to be considered or it allows a more conservative or more stringent risk assessment to be applied. Um, generally speaking, the same, um, the same principles are applied to new actives as they are for older actives, um, but this periodic review is one of the hubs on, on which the, uh, the EU uh, um, approval system is based. So that if an, if an approval is given to an active for five years or for 10 years, that there's always that, um, I suppose, uh, level of um, expectation that even if the evaluators got something wrong in that in the initial review that it would be caught on the re-review some a few years later but generally speaking as i said the eu system is quite conservative and uh, many products uh, don't get through the system that get through the system in all our other oecd member countries united states canada new zealand etc you probably and i presume we have an awful lot of I suppose the the equipment to test the either the um, the breakdown products or or even the, uh, the the active itself is so much better now maybe than it might have been twenty years ago when it first went through the system. Absolutely. When uh, when I got into the area of pesticides, we used to uh, talk about uh, parts per million, uh, generally in hundreds of parts per million. Now we talk about parts per billion, and the analytical capability is uh, is vastly different than it was even five years ago. So um, in many ways, that's not helpful because many of the, uh, the, uh, the residues that we actually find, they're so low, they mean absolutely nothing, but it just means that we can detect them at minuscule levels. So we've had a, a few, just to give people an idea, we've had a few um, high profile chemistries that have been lost over the last uh, year or so um bravo or chlorotalanol and diquat being being probably two that it's easy to put our finger on um would you have an idea of why or what were the main reasons that either either of those lost their registrations um well i suppose it's important to point out that each active substance or every active substance that's not approved um has at least one serious issue identified with it. um i suppose offhand in the case of chlorotalanol which is uh is going to be sadly missed by uh, by cereal growers uh, right through the EU. Um, there was an issue, or still is an issue, with uh, its breakdown products uh, in uh, getting into groundwater. So a term that we use, groundwater metabolites. So the chlorothalonil breaks down and it results in a number of uh, breakdown products or metabolites. That was a, a big issue, as well as uh, a classification issue where anybody familiar with using any of the chlorothalonil products would 
have seen a series of uh, warning symbols and warning um, warning uh, warnings issued on the label. So it it wasn't a straightforward case with chlorothalonil. Um, the other one you mentioned with Diquat, uh, several products containing Diquat. Um, uh, people would be familiar with those uh, having a, a uh, skull and crossbones or um, again all these risk and safety phrases and, and symbols associated with it. But um, Diquat was primarily impacted uh, um, by its uh, risk being identified um, when used around residential areas and uh, residents, which uh, couldn't be solved um, in the short term, or at least in time for uh, for it to be voted in a positive way. Um, so it's, there usually active substances are, there's enough time for companies to solve problems that are associated with them, but uh, it's frequently the case that problems um, don't get solved in a timely manner, and um, Iquot and chlorothalonil are, are two of those examples. Okay, um, if we move maybe just a little bit back towards the, the, the farmer and um, towards the farmyard, um, most of the plant protection products are, are applied, I suppose, for this year in, in, in Maine. What are the other tasks that a farmer should be trying to have a look at in terms of wrapping up the that end of the of the house and the farm, um, uh, you know, over the next month or, or six weeks. Uh, but I suppose when farmers uh, or growers find themselves with a bit of time in their hands, they should maybe take this opportunity to keep PPP records or their their use records up to date. Uh, conduct an annual store check, and I'd like to say uh, we have a number of publications on our website which uh, outline products that are no longer uh, uh, authorized. It also uh, states what use-up periods are available for, for certain products. Um, things like sprayer maintenance is, is also important, and farmers uh, should be mindful of their obligations regarding the testing of their sprayers. Um, I suppose other things like routine maintenance of stores and sprayers is something you can do on those wet days, and uh, I suppose in the last week or so, we've seen a few of them. So it's, it's uh, just general, general things. Can I just ask you, as kind of linked to records a little bit in the sense of um, we, we now have, I suppose, increased resistance to uh, plant protection products for, for weeds and pests and disease out there. Um, uh, where do you see I, IPM or integrated pest management um, working in tandem with those products in the future? Well, I suppose to say, just to say at the start, uh, that resistance and where, you, where we see reductions in sensitivity uh, to certain PPPs is a big concern to us and we've always tried to ensure that there's a range of active substances with different modes of action available to combat uh, those various situations. Um, but in some instances cultural control um, is used and can be used to control uh, various different pests. The one that comes to mind is um, for me and you know, is the control of brome grass uh, in uh, in headland areas and uh, in Oak Park uh, two years ago was it we saw a good example where tussocky grasses were, were grown in field boundaries and um, to try and reduce the amount of brome that was uh, um, uh, ingressing into the field um, but the thing that a message that we need to get across is that integrated pest management um, 
you know, it's not all about just cultural control or biological control. That IPM uses all the available techniques, including chemical control, and that's something that's lost to a lot of a lot of commentators and a lot of people uh, uh, in the sector. Um, and most people, when they talk about IPM, they don't consider chemical control as being part of IPM. And the reality is that many of the problems in broadacre crops, in particular, simply can't be solved by uh, cultural or biological means alone. They require, you know, a kind of a multifaceted or a multi-pronged approach. Um, the horse sector is a, is a little bit different, and particularly in the protected crops, the use of biologicals and microorganisms is, is more commonplace, and um, that's largely because growers can control and manipulate maybe the environment. But um, it's our position, and you know, we're we're quite close to the to the to to farmers. Every arable farmer in the country is applying some level of IPM, but it's it's trying to uh, maybe improve that to some degree. The, the last question I'm going to ask you, Gordon, is probably a difficult one in fairness because it's it, it's only new out. But in the the farm to fork strategy um, coming out from from the EU, uh, some of the reductions that they're looking at there in terms of plant protection products that that, that have been mooted there look quite um, excessive. How do you see that progressing in, in, in the number of years, or is it very much in the realms of the political um, side of the house and, and um, it's all to be played for? You mentioned the word excessive. It, they're, they're certainly challenging. The, the reductions that the, of PPP use that were announced by the Commission, they fall in the region of 50% by 2030, uh, which is a challenge in itself, but it's, uh, it's, it's even more challenging when you couple that with a reduction in artificial fertilizer use. Um, now, I suppose Ireland already is starting from a low base uh, and we have extremely low PPP usage. Um, so if we, if we have to reduce even further and reduce fertilizer use, you know, it's simply unrealistic to expect that this can be achieved without some significant reduction in crop yields and some decrease in crop quality. Um, most particularly if the EU continues to restrict particular plant breeding technologies like you know, the, the CRISPR uh, gene editing technology and others. Um, crop waste is also going to be a, a, an issue, particularly for fruit and vegetables and, and the heart sector. Um, things like mycotoxins and grains, and there's other issues. But the challenge will be for policymakers and politicians to make sure that, you know, that there's simply no mass exodus from the arable sector, like a sector that's already under pressure. Um, and I suppose as as uh, as people that feed into the policy uh, policy um, side of things, it's up to us to try and make sure that uh, that those impacts are um, you know lessened as to as far an extent as possible. And um, but you know nobody wants to uh, or nobody will argue against making farming a more sustainable uh, <clears throat> a more sustainable business both from a an environmental and ecological perspective but as well it has to be uh, economic as well if people are going to stay in the business so there are things that uh, will have to be balanced uh, and as you muted uh, earlier it'll have to be done on on, on the political stage uh, to a large extent Gordon, thank you very much for your time um it's it's a fascinating area and Hopefully we can come back to you, uh, maybe with a few more insights when we have a bit more clarity as regards uh, Farm to Fork. Anytime, we'd love to. That's it for the Tillage Edge this week. My thanks to Gordon for joining me on the podcast. 
don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more farming information, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. And I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.